to have you with us on another edition of Cover Crop Strategies. I'm your host, Noah Newman. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsor. They have a special message for you. At Verdesian Life Sciences, we believe that supplying healthy water and soil for the next generation is just as important as supplying efficient nutrients for every crop farmers grow. For us, sustainability and profitability go hand in hand. That's why we call ourselves the Nutrient Use Efficiency People. We have dedicated ourselves to providing prescriptive nutrient use efficiency solutions that improve plant uptake and reduce fertilizer losses, helping preserve the environment and make the most of your investment. Learn more at VLSCI.com or talk to your ag retailer today about Verdesian products. This week, we're joined by TJ Cardis. He started working with cover crops on his family farm many years ago, and he's been hooked ever since. The Southern Minnesota native now works for Saddle Butte Ag, selling cover crop and forage seeds in the Dakotas, Iowa, Wisconsin, Nebraska, Missouri, and of course, his home state. For this episode of Cover Crop Strategies, we are going to tap into TJ's knowledge about all things cover crops, from seeding tips to some of the biggest challenges his customers come across. We'll also get TJ's take on equipment trends, potential regulations, cover crop myths, and why farmers shouldn't wait until the last minute to order those seeds for the fall. Without further ado, here's TJ. My name is TJ Curtis. I live in southern Minnesota. I'm a regional representative for Saddle Butte Ag out of Tangent, Oregon, which is all of Willamette Valley. Uh, I cover five northern states for Saddle Butte. So I cover the Dakotas, Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin. I do some work in Nebraska, northern Illinois, or northern Missouri. So I cover a lot of the area of the U.S. where this is not supposed to work. And we make cover crops work in those areas. I have many dealers and distributors I work with, and we are a a nationwide seed supplier for cover crop and forage seed. When we look at our survey data and the trends of cover cropping in the United States, so many no-tillers do it. But on the other hand, when you look at people who practice conventional tillage, I mean, overall in the country, I believe the most recent USDA Census of Agriculture, I think it was 3.9% total cover crops in the country. In your experience... Why are certain people most hesitant about trying to implement cover crops on their operation? You know, I, I go back to one thing uh, all the time, and I use the, the I call it the fear the the fear factor, and it's it's the three big F's. You know, it's it's the fear of failure, the fear of change, and the fear of equipment. And I think that's a lot of this is is the fear factor in this you know, where guys they're not sure how to make this work and they're not sure who they should ask and of course the guys that are doing it maybe are really advanced in it and they feel that if they go talk to them they're maybe going to be like looked down upon or well you know you should have come earlier we've been doing this for a while you know farmers are great guys they really are and they network together well but at times they can be very standoffish too about new practice changes some of the other issues we've had is the agronomy fields have not really kept up with our changing times in my personal feeling. And a lot of the agronomists really don't know how to handle the cover crops. And it's kind of a disconnect. And we're working really hard. We have agronomy people that are really going to help educate and work with large co-ops and large retailers on how their agronomists can fit into this and how it's going to work for them. So I think there's a lot of fear. And then the equipment change. You know, guys will say, well, I'm not a no-teller, so I don't have a planter that's going to plant into this stuff. 
factors of how do you make it work, equipment changes, and can you get terminated? Is it going to get away from you? Your, your agronomy support has kind of been lacking some too. And I'm not picking on agronomists at co-ops or retailers at all. They're great people. They do an excellent job. They work really hard with the producers. But we're trying to work closer with them on showing them how to make this work so everybody can get on board with this. Yeah, and what what would you recommend as as the first step someone should take if they're if they're thinking about getting into cover crops? You know, what do you say to someone when you meet with someone who's coming to you for the first time about starting to plant cover crops in their operation? You know, it's a, a series of questions that myself and my dealers work with because we train really hard on this. Is we started asking a series of questions. Number one is, okay, are you comfortable with something overwintering? If you're not, then we'll go with a fall a winter kill mix. Uh, where it's not, and if something does escape, it's not huge. If you're okay with overwintering, where I tell guys to start is corn to beans is really a great starting point going to cover crop, and especially if you're no-tilling already. So go corn to beans, you use cereal rye. We're starting to work with more of some brassicas. Our uh, kale works well. Winter camelina is working well. We're trying to work on more legumes at that point, but sometimes in front of a bean or a soybean, you don't need legumes. But cereal rye is really easy starting point from corn to beans. If you have beans, the corn is where you want to start. We tell everybody, you know, maybe you're not ready for the overwintering. If you have corn silage, if you have uh, canning crops or small grains, there's a great starting point for you because you can do a little bit more diverse mix, see a lot of benefits out of it. Working forwards that way has been really terrific, but it depends on your operation. If you're just a corn and soybean producer, and this is all you're doing right now, then there's some different verbiage on what you have to do to make this work. And we can make it work for most guys really well. You started the podcast off by saying you live in a part of the country where cover crops aren't supposed to work, but you make them work. So going along with that, what would you say is the, the biggest myth about cover crops? Well, one of the biggest myths is that it's going to be a yield reduction. Um, we hear that a lot, that we're going to use, lose yield because of using cover crops. And that's not, that's not true at all. Um, we have seen some hiccups where we have not done the best job on, on, on the yield side of it. But we usually can understand, and we've done it long enough to explain why that has happened. If you're going from corn to beans, it's really easy to get started with it, like I said before. We've seen no yield reduction there. And if we have the, the cost offset of the uh, herbicide and everything, and, and the, the offset of the input cost has really shown a real benefit to the cover crop side of it. Gotcha. I remember doing an interview with a cover crop salesman in Iowa a few months back, and he had uh, mentioned that in his area or in his neck of the woods that uh, cover crop seed sales have quadrupled over the past year where he was. Have right. you seen any kind of trend like that uh, in your business? Yes. Yes. We're definitely seeing increases every year. We're seeing more people coming on board. You know, the big push behind this, the underlying push that people don't think about is this is a water quality issue is what it is. We're trying to scavenge and hold nitrogen and phosphate from getting in areas we don't want it to be. And that's where cover crops really play into this is that reduction in nitrate leaving the farm is huge. So when this thing becomes regulated, and I believe someday it will become regulated, I, I do enough work in, with people in D.C. that know what's going on in this world. There will be regulations that will show up at some point because of the water quality issue. That is the underlying thought here that we should be talking first about is how are we cleaning up our water? 
We're doing tile line monitoring and showing that we're cleaning up the water. So yes, have we seen increases? Absolutely. And that's, I think that's because that underlying current of the water quality is going to be the thing that pushes us down the road farther and farther. Yeah, that was definitely a big motivation with some farmers that I visited uh, in, in Western Ohio. They talked about how important water quality was, and that was a big reason why they were using cover crops. So is, is water quality, in your experience, usually the top motivator? I know erosion prevention has to be up there as well. Right. Erosion prevention, compaction alleviation, water quality issues. Every producer has a certain thing that really get them on board with trying these these and some of it's just a cost reduction. If we can show a cost reduction of 10 or 12% to 15% in inputs and a yield increase or a yield stabilization, there's a real economic benefit to making this all work. So, you know, every producer has a little bit different idea why they want to do it. And once we, once we target that, then we can actually start working forwards on a plan for them. But the water quality thing is still the underlying deal here that we need to talk about. Compaction and soil erosion, absolutely. I don't want to lose, I don't want to lose soil off any farms that we work with right now because they're paying seven to $20,000 for, for ground. You don't want it going anywhere else with staying where it belongs. But the nutrients are the big part of it. They got to stay where they belong too. Yeah. And on the flip side, you know, there's a lot of benefits that come with cover crops. So what, what are some of the big challenges that growers might face and what are some potential solutions that could go along with some of the challenges that you could think of off the top of your head? Well, one big, you know, one big thing is application. How are you going to get applied? Um, you know, the Northern region, we talked about, we have too short growing season, you know, it won't work. It's, we don't have enough growing season in the fall. Um, the wets with the cereal rye, oats, some of the small grains really work out. The overwintering brassicas are working better, the overwintering legumes. But we got to know how we're going to get them applied. And then the mixes and the ratios. So that's one issue. Once you start working with companies that really do a lot of this, you, you start to see the benefits of, of their services to you, of getting stuff to the plane, getting stuff to the high clearance machine, uh, lining up the VTs or the no-till drills. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of companies that offer these services. If they're in their area, utilize them. Go to them, work with them because they're going to make they're going to make it very pain free if you can help it. Equipment wise, what what kind of trends have you seen when it comes to cover, the development of cover crop equipment over the last say decade? More interseeders being built, uh, you know, things along that line. Oh, you know that's that's a huge thing. Is we have developed so much equipment in the last five years, and especially in the last ten years of interseeders, high clearance machines, vertical tills with seed boxes on them. Um, I have guys that are modifying no-till drills. I have guys that are modifying normal drills to drill just between the rows so they leave where the row is going to be for the next year there. You know, the planes have really come a long ways with making sure they know how to set their gates, to seed it correctly. I, I tell everybody, when you start a new situation, producers are so innovative they'll build it themselves and then the machinery companies come along and say oh we can build that faster and quicker and better and they do but we start on the ground level the boots on the ground and say what do we need to make this work so we started with interseeders after we got the planes flying we started with the early interseeding with using like the ryegrass and those kind of products we started modifying rotary hose. We started, you know, taking no drills and moving the drill units. So creative. Guys are so creative. And most of the time it was stuff they drug out of the backwoods and said, I still got this. I could <laughs> modify this and make it work. And we did. And then the, the machinery companies come along and said, hey, we could build those. And yes, they can. So they do. I think it's just been fantastic 
the amount of equipment that's been designed, the seed boxes to handle multi-species cover crops and seed them correctly. The, the uh, wheels that they've come up with to meter out this stuff so we're getting the correct pollens out there we want to. The, the backing disc for Kinsey planters and other planters so they can plant the cover crops at angles or into biostrip tills. Fantastic work. I, I applaud machinery people. I applaud producers for building it. And then machinery people come along and say, hey, we can, we can do this. We can help with this because it's really been terrific. Yeah, last week we had a father and a son on the podcast who who built their own 12-row interseater out in the Green Bay area. So that was pretty cool. I love stuff like that, you know, where guys will say, here's what I want to do on my farm. This fits for my operation. So I got this and I got this and I'm going to build it and make it work. And that's just, to me, been terrific because then the neighbor builds one and then the neighbor builds one. And it really, it really works out well. Let's burn a timeout. Back to the podcast in just a minute, but let's thank our sponsor once again. They have a special message for you at Verdesian Life Sciences. We believe that supplying healthy water and soil for the next generation is just as important as supplying efficient nutrients for every crop farmers grow. For us, sustainability and profitability go hand in hand. That's why we call ourselves the Nutrient Use Efficiency People. We have dedicated ourselves to providing prescriptive nutrient use efficiency solutions that improve plant uptake and reduce fertilizer losses, helping preserve the environment and make the most of your investment. Learn more at VLSCI.com or talk to your ag retailer today about Verdesian products. Now, back to the podcast. In terms of seeding recommendations, is it just a deal where it depends on your region or your operation, or is there one specific way that you would recommend to seed cover crops? I always tell everybody I love to have like a like a four or six prong pitchfork. You know, a three prong pitchfork you can only pick up so much stuff. So I like to have multiple ways of doing it, and it depends on your crop. You know, if you're coming out of small grains, have more of a window to seed more things. Uh, seed to soil contact, with depending on the mixes, becomes very critical at times. So if you're if you're flying stuff on, you have to make sure what you're flying on or you know, of these high clearance machines, what they're spreading is going to grow. So you have to have stuff that can be thrown out on top of the ground with a little bit of water, a little bit of dew, and it's going to germinate and get in the ground. And then there's crops that you have to actually physically put in the ground. So the time of year becomes part of it. So I, I tell everybody, you know, when you when companies come with these standard mixes that work everywhere, I always kind of question some of that because they'll work here, but it, it's, it really doesn't work over here. So a lot of a lot of our clients have put in their own blending facilities or we found ways to blend seed so that we can do multi-mixes based on what are your goals, what's your equipment for application, what's your timing, and then we, we build a mixer on that. Gotcha. We had, we've seen a couple articles recently that talked about cover crop seed potential shortages or supplies being tight. Is that something you've run into at all? You know, it's like everything else. As we grow, as an industry grows, there's always going to be growing pains. Yes, we are probably going to be tighter on things again. I think there's a fairly good supply running out there right now. But I tell everybody, don't wait till September 1 to start ordering your cover crops. If you know you need something, you should probably get it ordered and come your way as fast as you can. And take it now. Don't wait to take it for another month. Take it now. Because we are in August. And guys will start seeding very soon. So 
I think we could see some tightness in the market. I would not say there's going to be a real like shortage where you won't get something, but you might have to tweak your species around a little bit. Is that is that about politically correct as I can say that? So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, yes, there's gonna, there is going to be some things we will run out of. So it's like everything else. If you wait till the 11th hour to order your seed, you might not get exactly what you want, but there'll be stuff you can plant. So basically just don't wait until the last minute. Yeah. And we tell everybody that, you know, we've really started to work with producers where this is part of their cropping system now. So when they're buying their corn and soybeans in November, we're meeting with guys at that time already putting their plan together for the next year. And we're, we have some guys that are doing prepay. We have guys that are saying, well, lock this in and come to me in June and I'll pay for it. I want to see in July, so I'm ready to go. Because this is becoming part of their operation. And because of it's part of their operation, it's helping us as an industry to make sure there's going to be enough seed. So in the Willamette Valley, they plant a lot of stuff. You know, they're harvesting right now. I mean, harvest is in full swing out there. They're harvesting ryegrass and turnips and radishes and combines and seed plants are running wide open. If they know we need something for next year, they'll start planting now or planning to plant early so they can take it out again. So we start projecting sales already now for next year. So as an industry, we're constantly looking into this crystal ball saying, at the next show, what's the next species the guy's going to talk about that he had good luck with it? I'm going to have 100 calls after that meeting, and it's something we don't have, or nobody's raising yet, or one guy raised it. So um, with early planning, like in November, December, early January, we can tweak out in the valley something that could be raised that could be planted in March or April and harvested in June or July so we could have it here in the Midwest. So I know you just got back from the National Strip Till Conference out in Iowa City last week. What were your big takeaways from that? And are strip tillers embracing the cover crop trend as much as no tillers are? I think they're starting to embrace it a lot more. Um, I think one of the questions we always hear is if I bulk spread this and I incorporate it in with my strip till pass, I'm wasting the money. And I always go back to, well, kind of, but if you seed it in September or end of August and it grows until the end of October into November, you got 25, 30 days for the growth, you got three, four inches on top, 12, 14 inches underneath, and you work it in, your grandparents called that green manure. It was a huge benefit, they thought. And it was. So doing that maybe isn't always bad. We've seen equipment being modified. A lot of the strip till units are coming out where they can seed covers in between the strips as you're strip tilling. Great. Once again, equipment manufacturers here is seeing a need, jump on board and say, how do we make this work? And they, and they did it. There's a lot of those out there like that. So we're hearing more of it. The drill modification where they're leaving a, a zone to strip till and they're seeding the covers with a drill. So we're seeing so many different options that, yes, they're adopting it more and they're, re, they're understanding why they want to adopt it more. And I think that's great. I really believe that that has really helped us push this along with the guys wanting to use cover crops. They're seeing a benefit to it. And a lot of guys got up and spoke about how they are using covers and have seen a benefit from it. Yeah, our strip-till innovator of the year, Brian Ryberg, who's the uh, strip, he strip-tills sugar beets. Um, he, he said, he talked about how much cover crops have helped his operation. So that's a yeah. pretty pretty big endorsement right there. 
Yep, and he's north of me in Minnesota. You know, he's he's probably two and a half hours north of where I'm at. So he's even farther north and cold. Wow. So yeah, Brian's really a great a great promoter for us. And I mean, twenty inch strips for sugar beets, which is something that you told sugar beet farmers ten years ago you're going to strip till they'll lap you right off the planet. That I said, ah, that will never work here. <laughs> and they're making it work. Yeah, it's worked really well for him. So I know that yeah, absolutely. Y- you actually had experience working on a farm, right? When you were younger, working with cover crops, and, and how much did, does that kind of help you in, in your job today, having that experience? So, so actually where I started out was I work in my, my family farm. My uncle runs it. It's my mom's brother. And the joke always was is I grew up on one side of the road with my mom and dad. They taught me all the basic stuff, and I went across the road, and my grandmother and uncle were there, and they taught me all the good things about farming. <laughs> and so my uncle is a very progressive farmer. His, his dad passed away when he was really young, and he was a very progressive farmer on making changes. So in 76, he started chisel plowing. In 1987, we went to Ridge Chill, and everybody told me, you're going to go broke this whole work. You can't do this here. And, he, and we kept making it work, and I got to really be part of that operation for many, many years. And still very much in that operation, I just do a different role on being like the seed supplier and the seed service person, and he raises oats for our company and, and I buy those back from them. So I'm still very in tune with the operation. I live on one of the farms yet, so I watch the stuff right around me all day long going on. But it's been great to see a, prog- a person very progressive in change to say just because we did this 10 years ago doesn't mean we have to keep doing it. What's the next best thing? What's a better thing? How can I improve the environment? And he's very much an environmentalist. He believes in water quality, and I got to grow up watching this. And <laughs> somebody who wasn't scared to say, I don't care what they're doing. I don't think that's right. I'm going to do it this way. So it really helped me. And in, in 2012, we started cover cropping on that farm and we progressed it to the third crop and multi-species. And it's been a great transformation. And I've got to be hands-on watching, digging, looking at this. One point, and if anybody remembers Memorial Day this week, this year, especially in the upper Midwest, we had a terrible windstorm. It, the wind blew all day Memorial Day. You could hardly see we sat out in our garage and had a little cookout in about a 60-mile-an-hour wind because everything was no-till and covered around us and no dirt was flying. And you looked at either direction, you couldn't have been outside because you'd have been sandblasted from the dirt flying. Wow. That right there should have been a testimony to all of our neighbors to say, what's he doing over there? I think I knew, we had corn that got cut off some. We got beans that got cut off some from the wind damage. And, our, and my uncle's stuff is standing there proud. We had a neighbor across the road that started with us last year. His stuff looked great where they'd work some beans, looked a little tougher. But it, it really, and he even put a couple posts on social media about, well, maybe I really got to really look at this harder now. Yeah. So that's a great testimony right there. <laughs> Somebody's saying, I need to look at this harder. Definitely. That says it all. All right. I'm going to ask you to, to stare into your crystal ball. So, so 10 years from now, what, what's your prediction for the biggest trend or, 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 how, or the direction that cover crops are going to go 10 years from now? You know, what, what are we going to say when we look back on? 2022 well we'll say one or two things either we'll say those guys are nuts i don't know what they're doing (laughs) or what i think what i really think will happen down the road is and i hate to say these words and i hope it doesn't bite me i think there will be mandated rules they'll come to us because of this water quality soil erosion issues um and i and i think because of that we will adopt this i I think there's guys that are adopting it right now so i think in 10 years our landscape is really going to look different out here 
Um, there's many reasons uh, the carbon credit market, the the you know the eco service marketing consortium. There's other companies too that are working on multiple different ways for benefits to pay producers to keep involved with this. Um, I, I think we're going to see a lot more in the landscape. The, the the tough part is there will be some guys that will just will fight it right to the end. And the the scary part is if you look at the average age of our producers. You know, it's like 60 or 61 years of age. In 10 years, they're in their 70s. Somebody else will probably be around these farms by then. And I'm I'm hoping the people that are doing it are very land. I, I'm not saying no, these guys aren't land stewardship oriented. They very much are. But we have to also have a balance of two things. One is land stewardship, conservation. The other thing has to be economics. You've got to be profitable doing all this. There's got to be a profit in it for everybody. Because if we're not profitable, we're not going to be here. So when I do my talks, that's one thing I talk about is profitability and how this works. But I think in 10 years, we will see a lot more on the landscape. I think there'll be areas that will still be fighting it. I'm just hoping we don't have to have rules and regulations to make it happen. But I'm scared that's what's going to happen. There you go. Well, hey, maybe 10 years from now, if we're both still doing this, I'll... We'll connect again and, and revisit, play this clip and see how yeah. accurate you were. Yeah, archive this thing. Put it in a time capsule and pop it open in 10 years. If I'm still kicking, <laughs> which I hope I am. Yeah, you, you, uh, you and me both. me and say, you know, where are we at now? And I can, I'll, maybe I'll say, right where I thought we were going to be. Or, boy, we took a 180 somewhere along the line. <laughs> It'll be interesting to look. It's crazy how fast time flies, though. You were just saying, you know, 2012 is when you first got involved in cover cropping. Boom. We're 10 years later already here in 2022. So, uh, well, I think that's the crazy part is, you know, I, I'm 54 years old. I'm not trying to date myself, but I'm 54. And I look back and think, geez, it was just the other day. I was 30 and actually moved our youngest child over to uh, college yesterday. And I'm thinking uh, he just was born like a couple days ago, wasn't he? And he's <laughs> off to college. So, yeah, time doesn't, you know, and I think that whole thing, if it speeds up, the older you get. Well, that wheel's spinning pretty fast for me right now, and I didn't think it was going to do that, but I guess it actually does happen that way. Yeah, every, every year just goes faster and faster. All right, well, this has been a great conversation, but before we let you go, anything else you'd like to add? Or One thing I'd like to say is, you know, if you're going to do this, find a reputable source. There's many of us out here that do a great job. Look us up, work with us. Um, there's many companies that do this, but in, if application's part of it, look into that. Find good Replicable people that are going to do a planes, VTs, whatever it is. Just try to do the best job you can. Work with people that are reputable. You know where the seeds come from. You know their background. You know what they're trying to accomplish. And it's a team effort. It's a big team effort. I talk about this all the time. A team effort. My part is a cover crop. Your agronomist is taking care of the rest of the stuff. You're the producer. Let's all join the team and work together in the same direction. Don't fight each other. So order early. Work with a reputable source. You know, I'll use the Larry the Cable Guy analogy. Let's get her done because <laughs> somebody could govern us someday. And we just don't want that to happen. That was TJ Cardis. Thanks again to TJ for joining us on this week's podcast. And before we go, let's once again thank Verdesian Life Sciences, our sponsor. They have a special message for you. At Verdesian Life Sciences, we believe that supplying healthy water and soil for the next generation is just as important as supplying efficient nutrients for every crop farmers grow. For us, sustainability and profitability go hand in hand. That's why we call ourselves the Nutrient Use Efficiency People. We have dedicated ourselves to providing prescriptive, nutrient use efficiency solutions 
that improve plant uptake and reduce fertilizer losses, helping preserve the environment and make the most of your investment. Learn more at VLSCI.com or talk to your ag retailer today about Verdesian products. Thanks again for joining us on this week's edition of Cover Crop Strategies. Until next week, remember, for all things cover crops, head to covercropstrategies.com.